this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable. With stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, January 30th, the I'm the Standard edition. I'm Allison Benedict, an editor at Slate and the mother of Harry 5, Sam 3, and Wally 10 months. And I'm Dan Coyce. I'm also an editor at Slate, and I'm the dad of Lyra, who is eight, almost nine, and Harper, who is six. Hi, Dan. Hey. On today's show, we're going to talk to Jennifer Sr. about her new book, All Joy and No Fun, The Paradox of Modern Parenthood. And then gap years. Should parents encourage their kids to take a year off between high school and college? But first, our parenting fails or triumphs for the week. Dan, you go first. I have a triumph. All right. Yeah. So uh, this weekend, um, this past weekend, we had no plans, like no plans at all. We have reached that time in uh, winter where we have just completely run out of things to do to the point that Alia on Sunday actually did shrinky dinks with the kids. <laughs> God bless her. Yeah. Uh, this is after a week of like no school, right? Right. Snow yes. Days? Yeah. Yes. Uh, but so on Saturday morning, Harper, just like out of nowhere, just said, hey, daddy, when are we going to go back to the big white building in the city where there are big rooms where people play music and we dress up fancy? Hmm. And my parenting triumph of the week was that I figured out she was talking about the Kennedy Center. Oh, wow. 
uh, where we had not been for like a year uh, because I just hadn't gotten it together to like buy tickets to any of their amazing like family shows. Uh, but so pretty cool that your kid want is like, when are we going to go back to the Kennedy Center? Yeah, that was amazing. so that was surprising yeah. that yeah. she remembered it and that she asked about it. I mean, yeah. she mostly likes dressing up in fancy clothes, but so I went online and I got tickets for a thing that was that afternoon, and we went with I went with both kids and we took a friend of Lyra's and. Um, it was totally great. It was a Quebecois dance troupe doing this contemporary dance piece that kids liked, and it was totally awesome. And I felt like I won at parenting for one brief moment. It sounds like you did. That sounds really fun. Um, I also have a triumph, a, a tiny right. triumph, a TT. Uh, the nighttime routine in our house has basically become untenable. Um, the, between the hours of 6 and 8.30, there's just way too much to do. I get home or my husband gets home at 6 from work and, you know, whatever. We have to do what everyone has to do. Feed the kid, you know, dinner, uh, homework, bath, reading before bed and putting the baby. The baby has a separate bath and goes to bed earlier. And then also just like seeing my kids and hanging out with them. And all my friends have always, for long, for a long time, said to me, "Why don't you ask the babysitter who has the kids in the afternoon after school to either, you know, fix them dinner, or do bath, or something, so that you have more time when you get home?" And I've been very, like, you know, no. These are the things that I do. I'm not giving these things up. Not necessarily because I enjoy them so much. More <laughs> probably because, you know, I don't see my kids all day, and I feel guilty. And these are things that a mother should do, and I don't want to sort of offload any more parental responsibilities. However, last week I totally cracked and asked our sitter if she would start doing homework with Harry, our kindergartner. Did your kids have homework in kindergarten? They did not. Okay, no. well, my kids have like, my kid has like a half hour of homework every night. Anyway. Bananas? Yeah. So she said, sure. And I said, you know, if Harry's tired after school and he doesn't want to do it, it's okay. But if he's into it, do it. And they've been doing it and it has made, I mean, it's just made a huge difference. It's just made our evening so much nicer for him, for me. We don't have that stress together. Um, And, you know, I suppose that this might sound like a parenting fail to some because I'm shifting yet another responsibility. But to me, it's like finally being sane enough to realize I can't do all of this every night is a triumph. No, I turned that as a triumph, and an additional triumph was that you chose the exact right thing because you know, <laughs> right. doing homework for your kids <laughs> totally. is awful. Like, totally. Bath is kind awful. of fun. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, let's move on to our first topic. A few years ago, New York Magazine contributor Jennifer Sr. wrote a cover story for the magazine entitled All Joy and No Fun, which articulated the unhappy condition known as parenting today. It pissed off some people who objected to the idea that parenting was making them unhappy and relieved many others, myself included, who were momentarily made happy by reading of others' unhappiness. Momentarily. Momentarily, right. (laughs) Now Senior has expanded on that piece in a new book also titled All Joy and No Fun, The Paradox of Modern Parenthood. And she's here today in our New York studio to talk about it. Hey, Jennifer. Hey, I love that formulation. I'm going to try and re creative. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> it's just combining unhappiness and happy like but it, eight times. Yeah, but it was great. It totally thank you, worked. Thank you. <laughs> so early in your book, your book is great. Thank early you. in your book, you quote an old Irma Bombeck line, which is, I have not been alone in the bathroom since October. And man, I can relate. I have not been in the bathroom in alone in five years, I think. So that and, and everything else in the book, uh, in the sections that um, were about raising younger kids, which is what I had have uh, just rang so true to me. But I kept thinking that my mother would read this and it wouldn't ring true to her. Like, she always says to me, like, it just wasn't like this when I was raising you. And I'm wondering if you can, like, articulate what has changed. There was still, when you and I were growing up, something vaguely resembling a family wage where, like, it was just easier, I think, for... 
you know, for I think parenthood had not become quite the profession that it is now. Parenting had only started to become a verb in the 1970s. But you still could, as a mother, in good conscience, just put your kid in a playpen when they right. were small. You could just leave them on the floor and feel absolutely no guilt about not entertaining them, about leaving them to their own devices. You could send them outside to be on a bike, and it was all completely fine. I think what has happened um, is that we now, because, first of all, we live in this kind of high-velocity, changing world, we don't know what the future is going to look like. Of course, we never did, but we know for sure that our kids are not going to have a job that we can even probably identify. And we don't know how to prepare them for that future. Um, And we also know that income inequality is really accelerating now in a way that it wasn't necessarily when you and I were growing up, at least during the 50s and 60s. It was at record lows. And during the 70s, it started, but it was nothing like what it is now. Um, So I think now parents are very frenetically doing everything they can to prepare their kids for a future that they can't see, that they assume will be economically bleak. So it means exhausting themselves and spending more time with their children than they actually did in the 1960s. I mean, this is women specifically. Like, but, you know, when women weren't even working. Right. I mean, it's it's crazy. But if we were to say to our kids, just go, you know, dig a hole in the backyard, it w- it's not just that parents can't say that anymore, but also doesn't it feel like kids can't do that anymore? That they've lost the total <laughs> right. ability. To, they can't tolerate boredom anymore. Right. And we've done that to them? And I think that we, yeah. <laughs> I think that it's conceivable we have. I mean, we've elevated their expectations, you know, in this particular way. Um, and so, um, and and by the way, I'm not sure that there's any good evidence out there that the kid benefits from all of this attention. Right. You know, that they are materially benefiting from our exhausting ourselves. You write in the book about this concept of flow and how families don't have it. Can you describe that? Yes. And thank you. Okay. I love you for bringing this up. So flow is this concept um, coined by a guy named Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. He's Hungarian. Nicely done. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I was just thinking, what, how is she going to pull it off? Can I tell you, I memorized how to spell his name the way that I memorized George Stephanopoulos' spelling when I covered politics in the 90s. It was like just this massive spelling challenge, and now I've got it committed to memory. A, a Shakespeare sonnet could go there, and it's crazy. Anyway, um, but <laughs> he... he um, coined it. It's, I mean, you know, if you want the vernacular, it's like when athletes are in the zone, when artists are like feel the wind at their back and they feel like they're just kind of like, you know, running faucets and everything's pouring out of them and it's great. It's when you are generate, you have perfect control over what you're doing. You are mastering it. You are highly productive and you have no awareness of time even going by. Time stands still. It's just this blissful thing. And it's almost marked by like an absence of feeling. You're just at one with the thing that you're doing. And kids are optimized to take in a lot of stimuli. They are not optimized to focus on one thing. That's not what they do. You know, also, when they need repetition, it can be incredibly boring, you know, like throwing this, the ball back and forth a hundred times or them watching the same episode of something or doing the same thing with you over and over again. This is not flow for you. It's flow for them, though, It's right? flow for them. <laughs> that is precisely yeah. right. No, that's that's very astute. I think that's right. But it's not for a grown-up. It's not challenging enough. So, like, do you just throw in the towel? I mean, what he did in his book that I found kind of a fake-out move was he said that 
if you want flow in family life, you try and have a plan. You try and have a design so that there's at least a script to follow. But the problem, as many parents will tell you, is that that when that script backfires, it's devastating. You want to take your kid to the zoo because you have this fantasy that you're going to be like luxuriating in like, together you will be communing with the monkeys. Right. But your kid doesn't care about the monkeys. Your kid is, like, more, like, obsessed with the fact that, like, his straw doesn't work or, like, wants to... The squirrels. To, or My the kid squ- is obsessed with the squirrels. The squirrels, which is, like, yeah. you know, we could see those, like, you know, picking at a garbage can, like, in the city. Why are we here? You know? I, I and mean, you have someone... You interviewed... So I forget which which one of the mothers said, like, the, w- the way that she kind of handles that is to always have low expectations. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and that was her... Right. Not flow. Just it, it, if it came, awesome. And if it didn't, you know, nothing lost. Which makes sense. I mean, what are the, what are the expectations? Like, it doesn't. If your kid is enjoying it, and you're going to the zoo for your kid, yeah, you're making yourself miserable by creating this environment where you can't win if he doesn't like, you know, get so excited over the monkeys. Exactly. You might not be achieving flow. I love right. what you just said. Actually, it's kind of ingenious. I mean, the idea is that the kid should be achieving flow. So if you don't, it's beside the point. I- I remembered being really bummed that my kid had, like, exactly no reaction to a giraffe. Yeah. And he was old <laughs> enough to. I was like, come on. Like, that, that, that neck. A, that, I mean, <laughs> think about that neck. What's up with that neck? And, you know, he was, like, plenty old enough to get it. D- couldn't be less interested. Sorry, but isn't that part of the problem, though, that if that the notion of then subordinating your own flow to your kid's flow is, like, part of what you're sort of diagnosing in this book is that there is – is that we are so focused now on bucking up and generating self-esteem for our kids that we measure ourselves by the quality of our parenting in a way that, our, for example, our parents or grandparents never did. And so it seems like that those sort of go hand in hand. Like if you're willing to be like, yeah, I'm going to endure this fucking bullshit for like three hours at the zoo – just for so my kid can have a good time or I'm going to play this repetitive game over and over and over again because at least my kid can find flow. Like, aren't you basically falling into the same trap? Oh, totally. Um, And, you know, if you've already been basically brainwashed or rewired where that, in fact, makes you happy, just seeing your kid be happy makes you happy, you know, and at times it absolutely does. Um, Most of the time it does. Then that's great. But it's true that my parents' attitude would have been, we're going to this national park and we're going on the trail that I want to go on. And, you know, you can complain the entire way, but like, I want to see this stuff. And, you know, and that was that. So I think um, I'm now enough of a creature of this particular world that like, I'm uncomfortable if my kids complaining the whole time. My parents could at a much higher threshold for tolerating my discomfort. Yeah, mine too. How was it? Just quaaludes? Like, I, I, yeah. <laughs> were they drinking earlier in the day? I don't yeah. know. But I also think we didn't think it was acceptable to wine so much. I see now, and that's the other thing. I think they put the kibosh on it pretty early, and I think that we probably over-respond. I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, I do try and emulate my father. I do say, you know, I don't care. You know, if you're like bored, right? I do, and I do say that, or I'll. I mean, and this is so pathetic, but I'll try and frame it as like a moral issue. Well, you know what? Now you're doing something for me, and we do that for one another. Yeah. <laughs> really, what I should do is say, yeah, tough. You know, like the, the, I, I wish I had the balls to sort of summon that, like, just I don't, you know, screw you kind of vocabulary that my parents had as their default setting. Yeah. It was like on a save get key or whatever. One thing that I just found really interesting about the the book is that you talk a lot about, in a way that I think other parenting books don't really consider, about the ways that these specific problems 
and the questions that parents have about parenting can become sort of like wedge issues in marriages or partnerships. Did you, have you found that in writing this and in interviewing all these people that it has changed the way that you view partnerships and, and the way that you view parenting with another person? Yeah, totally. And thanks for zooming in on that because um, it's a big bear. It's a huge thing. And I think... Um, it was a little hard for me to write about it first because you find yourself capitulating to a certain cliche. It winds up being true that um, – and you know what? I shouldn't say that it's a cliche because it is driven, in fact, by tons of data. I mean, women seem to uh, have this very um, anguished attitude toward how much time they spend with their kids and how much floor time they do, and to have this kind of intense, immersive attitude toward, like, this is what they're supposed to be doing. It's full saturation immersion with your children or bust. And I think men um, tend to let themselves off the hook a little bit more. And the reason for that, I mean, there are a number. But among them are the fact that, number one, I think dads aren't tyrannized by, like, whatever kind of standards might be out there, whether they're in pop culture or whether they're, like, visions of, like... um, what they, what women remember their own moms doing, and what level of attentiveness they believe is necessary. No, no, we still benefit from unbelievably low expectations. You do, to the point I, that if we get on the floor with them for like five minutes, people are like, "Oh, you guys are so adorable." It, it, it's totally. I mean, it is true. I mean, it, it's interesting, and you know, actually, in that there's this one chapter where I focus on this family. I mean, the, I think the what you're focusing on, Dan, is the chapter with Angie and Clint, where Clint is just willing to like cut himself a lot of slack, and Angie isn't. And Clint at one point utters, I am the standard. And th- which is <laughs> like a great line. Oh, I want to make it into a bumper sticker and like sell it to everyone and make it like a bookmark. He he but here's the thing about Clint. I mean, he said something that I thought was really key. His dad left his family when he was seven. So to Clint, anything he does, and he does a ton. He's like an awesome dad. But anything he did was gonna be considered really magnificent if you compared right. him to his own dad. Yeah. His own dad flaked. So Clint is already starting out at such a high point and, you know, considers himself so such a remarkable improvement over his own father. And so um, it was easy for him to declare, I am the standard. Angie's own mom, I'm guessing, didn't work. And Angie does and feels really bad about the 70 percent time that she works and feels terrible. And her kids start to, like, hang on to her you know, like these koalas, you know, hanging onto like, you know, I mean, literally the arms and the legs both around her before she leaves. And it's torture. And she feels like shit when she walks, you know, out the door. And she has a hard time forgiving herself for it, you know, and comes home and feels like every minute that she spends with the kid has kids have to be really, you know, immersive, I think. One of the things you talk about is how this modern idea that we're always supposed to be kind of, that we're always fretting about fulfilling our own potential and finding, you know, this endless search for happiness, how that impacts parenting. And you talked about how now that people are having kids later, it's even that mix is even sort of tougher because you experience, we experience a decade, many of us as autonomous adults making our own, you know, doing what we want when we want before we have kids. And I often think about, um, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. but I often think about what my life would be like if I'd had kids earlier and their professional trade-offs and, and people who get married and have kids 
you know, younger have higher divorce rates. I mean, they're all different, you know, ways to to look at this question. But I, I am wondering if you think, I mean, I think the cat's out of the bag, but if you think the benefits of having kids later outweigh the the drawbacks or if you think that that's actually like a real thing to think about. Yeah, no one's asked me that. Mm. I mean, I'm really, <laughs> and I, I mean, you could look at it a different way too, which is that, you know, you just have more energy when you're younger. Yeah, certainly. So, and your body is optimized for it, right? I mean, there are all sorts of reasons to, to contemplate doing it earlier, but it seems pretty clear that the arc of a woman's career is very different if she has kids early, you know, to... Um, too soon after school, that there's a very big, if you have, have a college degree, you pay a pretty big economic penalty right now if you don't wait for a bit and get yourself on a track. Um, as for, uh, I think that the better way to think about it is to um, change our expectations about happiness. And Stephanie Kuntz had this great line in um, The Way We Never Were that I quoted in my book that changed everything in terms of the way I think about this. She, ta- she pointed out that Americans think about freedom in terms of um, freedom from stuff, not uh, that, that, you know, we can change jobs, we can leave our hometowns, we can stay out until four in the morning, we can defer everything. She, you know, that, that we have, we can change spouses right. if we want. And like, she, no one ever kind of talks about freedom as like, oh, it's this great thing that we have in order th- so that we might give it up, you know, that it's... Um, it's not worth anything unless you can give it up and bind yourself to something bigger. So, you know. And those are the moments of joy. I mean, yeah, that's the joy of parenting, exactly. right? Like we're sitting here talking a lot about the, the, the no hardships. Fun. But we should say that, you know, we all are parents of children who we love and who bring us great joy that it's hard to even, you know, put into me- words. It's hard to put into yeah. words. It's hard to measure. I mean, one of the things also that these studies sort of suffer from is that, you know, they measure happiness, but they don't measure, like, if somebody set out to measure awe, you know, or, like kind of, or meaning or transcendent experience, I'm guessing parents would rate pretty high on all of those scales. But if you have, like, a kind of odd moment, you tend to tick the same box as a happy moment for the sake of these studies are kind of a little bit crude in their design in that way. So like, yeah, I mean, you know, I traded away like the ability to have a lot of drunken boozy evenings with my friends, right? So that at four in the morning, my kid would look at me and coo. Right. Like, uh, I don't, I don't go to synagogue. I'm not a religious girl. That was a pretty unbelievable moment. Right. And like, you know, I don't uh, For me, when I didn't have a kid, on Sundays, I would wake up. I'm not going to say this about other people because meaning comes in many different ways. But I know that I had sort of pooped out and hit my limit. I wanted to have someone to do something for. Yeah. That was what I wanted. I don't think One last question for you, Jennifer. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, please defend your horrendous <laughs> slander against Free to Be You and Me. Wait, when did I, when did I slander it? In an interview with Jess Grows on Slate's, I didn't. Walks. I just talked about that being the beginning. I love Freedom. I can like, I can literally <laughs> sing the entire album with you right now. And if you double dare me, I totally will. But yet you peg that um, as the beginning of the self-esteem generation. Well, which... just um, because you know, and what I mean by that is that um, if you just simply make as your explicit stated goal to make your kids feel self-confident and happy. That's hard for you, and it's hard for the kid. 
you can't teach happiness. It's not like teaching your kid piano or how to plow a field or how to ride a bike or how to, like, milk a cow. It's just not a teachable thing. You know, happiness and self-esteem are byproducts of things. They are not goals in and of themselves. But Free to Be You and Me was sort of, to me, the beginning of the, like, self-esteem movement where everybody wins, everybody is okay, everybody is great. It's also wonderful. It tells boys that they're, you know, that that it's all right to cry. And it, it, it does all these super positive things. I'm just saying that... Um, Again, I, th- I think we have to be careful about um, – I think it's hard on children and on parents to make happiness a goal. All right. We won't call Marlo Thomas on you for now. Please don't. <laughs> I, I love that. I, I, I really – I'll sing it all with you. I'm bald. I'm bald as a ping pong ball. Boy, are you bald. I will go on and on if you want. All right. We'll thanks, Jennifer. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you. Okay, let's move on to our next topic. But before we do, Dan has something to ask you guys. So, starting with our next episode in two weeks, we are going to start answering a call-in question uh, each episode. So, you know, you can call in, and if you're looking for parenting advice or movie recommendations, or I guess just words of encouragement, um, you can give us a call and leave us a message, and we'll choose a question or two to answer or respond to each episode. The number is 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE, which will be easy to remember because that's what my children are. Um, You are also free to make requests. Like you could say, Dan, please yell at my children for scribbling on the furniture. Or Allison, um, please express tender words of support to my tween because she is upset about Justin Bieber. Whatever. It doesn't matter. 424-255-RUDE. I will leave you an answering machine message. (laughs) So give us a call. Don't do that. (laughs) Give us a call, and uh, we'll pick a question or two for for our next episode. So for our second segment today, let's talk about gap years. The gap year, you know, a year off between high school and college, is very commonplace in Europe, especially in England. For Prince William's gap year, he worked in an English dairy farm, and he taught children in Chile. Uh, It's much less common in the United States. In 2009, for example, just to pick one school totally at random, 107 of 1,665 Harvard freshmen took a gap year. Although it is growing, at least anecdotally, and there is certainly a growing industry of not-for-profit and for-profit organizations that are there to help your children plan her gap year for like five grand a month. So now my kids are a long way from this, but I think about it quite a bit because I wish I had taken a gap year. Um, I think a little exploration would have really done me good. It would have helped me adapt to college better. I think maybe if I had done that, I wouldn't have spent all of college believing I was the most important person on the face of the earth. Um, But so I want to enforce a mandatory gap year for my kids. I want to require them to take time off between high school and college. Now, I don't just want them to spend 12 months partying on the beach in Thailand. And I also don't want them to just spend the whole year like working in a shoe shop. I want some kind of mix of work and service and travel. But the question is, how do I make this happen? And more specifically, how do I get them to agree to this plan? Because I can totally see them being like, no, you can't tell me what to do. Allison, have you thought about this? And what do you think about gap years? I have thought about it, and I'm basically, you know, I'm in support of them. I'm not sure I would uh, go as far to say that I think I sh- that I would make them mandatory, but mandatory. <laughs> 
The way I've always thought about them is exactly the way that you described, in a way that, like, how my college experience could have been better for me had I taken a year off and how this would enrich my children's lives. But in Slate, we recently published an excerpt um, by Joe O'Shea from a new book called Gap Year, How Delaying College Changes People in Ways the World Needs. And he really frames this as a conversation not about what's best for your kids, but about how this is good for the world. Which makes me more inclined <laughs> to think about it. Uh, good for the world because they're out there doing good and also correct. spending your money in developing nations? Yes. Well, so his idea of a gap year seems like a very kind of specific one, which is kids going to, you know, third world countries to volunteer. Mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, is that the is that the only kind of gap year that we can support? What about your kid who just, like, doesn't feel like he's ready or she's ready to go off to college and wants to be, a, you know— waitress for a year and go hiking sometimes and live in your house? Is that a gap year? Um, I'm I'm unsure about how I would how I would define it and what would be okay and what would not. I think at this stage I feel like I um if they could make their own money and um and you know I wouldn't if if or or there there are some programs down there starting scholarship funds for for kids to be able to do this. I would be okay with it. I don't think I would let them stay in my house, however. Really? Yeah. Interesting. So, so they'd have um, to actually be able to make their own. Yeah, and would rent. and would you spend money for their gap year? Like so there was a New York Times piece recently about the gap year explosion that I believe was the product of a number of helpful pitch emails from publicists who work with gap year <laughs> companies. But so it talked about this like crazy story about, you know, oh, this one family was like this is a great hate read going back to a, a recent episode. But yeah. so, you know, this one family was like, oh, we really wanted our son to learn a trade. So they sent him to ski instructor school in New Zealand. And it cost $15,000. No, I mean, I would never but like, do that. So that's bananas. He could become a cobbler. Right. If he wants a trade right. or whatever. But so, but, but sort of more specifically, there are also a lot of programs now that are somewhat academic and they are meant not only to give your child something to do away from you in, say, San Francisco or somewhere else, but also to burnish their resume or burnish their experience for their future college life. And in England, in fact, the, uh, a one of the top British education officials recently declared that she feels as though gap years are over, like they are done. They, we should stop considering them time for students to just get away from life and instead think of them really as like a part of their college application, a part of their burnishing their credentials for the eventual university they'll go to. In fact, she wants to stop calling it a gap year. She wants to call it a bridging year, which that to will... me also to <laughs> that me seems like it. it does, I guess. It's, no, it's the thing over the gap. <laughs> but it, But to me, that also seems like I am not concerned about my children, my privileged upper, you know, middle class children having enough things on their college resume or feeling enough pressure to yeah. excel. And and so that also bothers me. Like I want a little bit of that time to be like stupid decompression. I don't want them on the beach at Thailand like drinking beer out of barrels, but I do want them – you know, doing something that qualifies as at least a little bit aimless, you know? I, I'm with you on that. I mean, other I would I don't think I would spend the money for that. I mean, I think, like, the, the kids are old enough to, like, fund their own aimlessness, but, but I'm with you on that. I don't think, that's what I'm saying, I don't think it has to be this, like, narrow view, although it's wonderful if your kid wants to go, you know, volunteer somewhere and, and do good, but I also think, you know, I agree with you that it shouldn't be, like, one more 
sort of are, are there going to be tutors now for gap years? Like I, there shouldn't be right. one more thing that kids have to accomplish. <laughs> Apparently, uh, like to get into city year, it seems like it is like as hard as getting into like Harvard. I mean, that's, you know, yuck. yeah. Yeah. Um, um, but so one last question about gap years that I have for you, which is, so if I pitch this to my kids when they are like 15 or 16, when they're starting to think about these things, um, and they're like, no, I don't want to do that. I want to go to college. That's what I want to do. I want to go to college. This yeah. is my plan. How how do I get them to not do it? Do I just say, I mean, is it as simple as saying, no, you can't, you have to do this fun thing? Or no, I won't fund your college or chip in for your college unless you do this fun thing? Or am I like condemning myself to my kids hating this thing that they should love because I'm making them do it? I mean, I don't think you. Should, I, I don't think you can. I mean, what if your kids said to you that they don't want to go to college? Like you would, you would be, you know, ever. You wouldn't be happy about it, but there would be nothing you could do about it. They're adults, so I don't think. Like, I don't think is that true? Aren't yeah. there? Can't you be like, no, you're going to college? I mean, not I really. Not. <laughs> I mean, I could right now, but I guess that's because she's eight. I mean, I, I think it's hard to believe that a kid that you would sort of, you know, make this, make it mandatory and help them accomplish it, and they wouldn't want to do that. Although, like, you know what, my kid, my kids, sorry, my friends all went off to Israel for a year after high school, and I, like, I just couldn't do it for some reason. I was scared, or I don't know what it was, and I went straight to college. And so, I guess I can understand a kid sort of. Kids just get dumb ideas about what's important. When I was in college, I didn't study abroad because I was convinced that it was much more important for me to direct plays at the lab theater. I was but maybe like, it was. Is, I mean, maybe but it wasn't. It wasn't. It was such a terrible choice. You're I not going to direct. You're not going to. You're not going to prevent your children from making those mistakes at that age if it even is a mistake. So. So can I can I financially incentivize them into making those? Sure, but like, I don't know if that's worth it. Mistakes? Is that worth your money? I mean, how are you even paying for college? Do you really want to finance? Like, you know, I, sh- I, sure. I, I'm selling a kidney. I think. <laughs> okay, I do not support this plan. Although <laughs> we'll I'm see. Pro well, we'll see who's here. right twelve years from now. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, now is the time in the show where we recommend things. Dan, go me. No, oh. you. Okay, all right. Well, I just want to say I hope next episode I can sit here and recommend the Lego movie because we are psyched for that in my house. We think about it and talk about it a lot. It looks you really funny. You can recommend funny. the trailer for the Lego yes, movie right I can, now. I can recite the trailer for everyone. <laughs> but for now, I'm going to re- recommend the classic Jack London book, White Fang, not Ninjago White Fang or Chima White Fang, which is regular White Fang. Uh, we have trouble in my house at bedtime. My three-year-old doesn't like reading chapter books. And my five-year-old actually, like, though he is old enough to read chapter books, he often objects to them. And I tried so hard to get him into these horrible, dumb Magic Treehouse books that everybody seems to love. Do your kids read, read those books? For like a minute. And then they're oh, like, they're stupid. so horrible. I don't know why. For some reason, White Fang has just, like, hit the sweet spot. They both like it. It's scary, but not too scary. I had actually never read it. I've basically read no classics, including children's classics. So I'm recommending White Fang. That's awesome. Uh, I have also never read White Fang, but I'm going to buy it for one cent on Amazon and see what Lyra thinks. (laughs) Uh, My recommendation is a very simple one. Please, everyone who's listening, if you have little kids, go buy Pete Seeger's Children's Concert at Town Hall album on iTunes or wherever. 
because it is the greatest. Uh, Pete Seeger died this week, and in addition to all the amazing music he made for adults and his brave political stances and his intransigence in front of the House on american Activities Committee, he also recorded a lot of really great children's songs. I love this album, the best of all of them, Pete Seeger's Children's Concert at Town Hall. And I especially love track 23, Be Kind to Your Parents, most of all, because being grown-ups is a difficult stage of life. And Allison, I think that should maybe be our podcast theme music. (laughs) I agree. That's a great, great recommendation. So that's it. Please email us at momanddad at slate.com. That's M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D at slate.com with your thoughts about today's shows, parenting tips, and suggestions for future topics. And once again, if you'd like to call and ask us a question, that number is 424-255-RUDE. Like Dan just interrupted me. Rude. Super rude. (laughs) Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to leave a comment on iTunes while you're there. Thanks to Chris Wade for producing this podcast and also to Andy Bowers, executive producer of All Slate Podcasts. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Allison. Thank you all for listening. To your parents, though they don't deserve it, remember that grown-ups is a difficult stage of life. They're apt to be nervous and overexcited, confused from their daily storm and strife. Just keep in mind, though it seems hard, I know, most parents were children long ago. Incredible, so them with patience and kind understanding in spite of the foolish things they do. Someday you might wake up and find you're a parent.